0: All right, Travis. Welcome to the show. I'm excited for today's conversation, and I, I want to start off by understanding your journey of where you started and and how you ended up where you are today.
1: Yeah, so I grew up small town, north central Washington, pretty secluded from from any big city life. My father was in the military. Most of my family are military members. Or farmers, real blue collar workers. And I grew up in this little small town. I got introduced to a business at a young age by way of farmer's market. We had a big garden and a big farm. And so I found, hey, that I could take hard work and developing a product and go sell it and receive money, which led to opening up an account at a credit union where I first started learning about the concept of Interest and compounding interest As I got the monthly statements and I'm starting to learn that you can have money parked in a bank and you can watch that money grow over time. That piqued my interest, which then led me into what other types of investments are available to you outside of just getting interest from the bank which got me involved in investing a little bit. My mother opened the door for me there so I could start investing in stocks. And that's really kind of what got me started being very interested in the world of finance. So I left my small town and wanted to Kind to of reinvent myself and challenge myself. I ended up going to school at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. And I was uh, extremely fortunate during my time there. We had a professor named Dr. Clark Maxim, who really inspired me as well as uh, I would assume most of our classmates that you know, in the field of finance and what is available. And he pushed us you know, so much to get more out of us than we ever thought you know, we could get out of ourselves. And it cemented this idea that I wanted to spend my career in a finance capacity. Little did I know I would end up spending the majority of my career in construction, which is where I've been for 99% of my career since I left college, spanning from construction companies at $2 million a year, all the way up to construction companies at about $700 million a year.
0: And, and so that's and where I've in,
1: spent the last 20 years of my career.
0: And what got you into construction? I mean, you're interested in finance. I mean, there's, there's so many different avenues you could go down, you know, from like private wealth management to, you know, a, a corporate job in and in a finance role to Wall Street. I mean, there, there's so many different avenues. How did you end up in construction? Is, is that something that you knew you wanted to couple your experience with finance and construction and, and go down that path? Or was it just happenstance that
1: it occurred? Yeah, it was more just happenstance, right? When I got into finance, it was mostly because of my intrigue of the markets and investing. Even in college, some of my favorite courses were on building out hedge funds and dabbling in the futures market. And, And that's where I thought I was going to head, was going to be in some corporate finance or at some hedge fund company. And things changed right before I was graduating college plans ended up changing and while I was in college I worked for a mechanical contractor in Bozeman and I enjoyed the people that I worked with and as I mentioned before most of my family is blue collar and military people so in construction you have a lot similar types of folks so my experience there in college at working and helping putting myself through school you know I got a little bit of taste of what this industry was like and so when plans changed right before I was graduating college, it was an easy route for me to say, well, hey, I enjoy construction. Let me see if this is something I think I can make a career out of. And as a college student, sometimes does, makes an irrational decision. And I packed up a trailer and I drove to Vegas. Two days to get to Vegas and then picked up a job for another mechanical contractor down there. And the rest is history. I've spent the rest of my entire career in the construction industry.
0: Now, when it comes to finance, I mean, tell me more about how you started out. Like what was the, the first job that you had and was it more of a, a leadership type position or were you more like a grinder behind the scenes doing the transactional processing and, and financial reporting?
1: Yeah, much more of the grinder. Kind of like it was a $2 million a year company and I was going to school at the same time, but I'd kind of taken on somewhat of a controller role. For a, for a much smaller company. So I could dabble a little bit in payroll, of course, in accounts payable and accounts receivable. So very counting driven, uh, but then also started getting into utilizing my Excel skills at the time to start building out little estimating programs. And they were one of the first ones that I built out was just sizing boilers, and pumps for hydraulic heating systems and uh, concrete slabs. We did them in airport hangars there in Bozeman, Montana for the mechanical contract that I worked for at the time. And so I got to do a little bit of the engineering estimating and be a part of the business, but a majority of my role was specifically in accounting. And when I moved down to Las Vegas, it's funny to tell the story. I first applied for an AP clerk job. And keep in mind, I'm kid from a very small town who just graduated college and really only had one real accounting job and it was for a smaller contractor. And so I didn't have that that confidence in my skill set and what I could really be capable of and go on and do. And so when I was applying for positions in Las Vegas, it was AP clerk. That was one of my first interviews and throughout that interview, I ended up interviewing with the controller and then I ended up interviewing with the CFO. And by the time we got done with the interviews, they offered me a senior staff accountant role instead of the AP clerk role that I was going in for.
0: And why do you think that was? Like, was there something yeah, I, that I was, think, was there like a characteristic or like skill set, or was it just a better match for you to go into that role?
1: Yeah, the the feedback that I received was that I was more well-rounded than just the AP clerk based on my experience, but I had a a passion for for what we did, for construction, and they could sense that, and they felt like they had a better position for me to help influence other people on the staff and, and try to engage them more in the business itself and start working a little bit with operations and estimating as well, being that gap between accounting and, and operations, being able to kind of wear both hats.
0: Well, let's talk about that for here a minute, because I think that's so important. And you know, when I was in public accounting, I would always make it a habit to ask these like tough questions right about the business I, I was curious about you know how were they capitalized how did they get started you know who were their customers what geographies did they compete in what what were their competitive advantages and i'd ask all these questions because i was really curious not only about the numbers right but i was curious about how the business functioned how the operating model worked and when i was a cfo of a company you know i challenged my team to get out there and to go visit the job sites, go visit the field and and really understand the operations of the business. So then we could reinvent the accounting and finance function to match what was going on out in the field. And it was amazing to me of how many people not just in public accounting, but even in in the corporate world today, when I'm working with companies and finance departments of how many people, they don't really understand the core business or the sources of value or how the business actually makes money, right? I mean, they can regurgitate, Hey, yeah, we're, we're a construction company. We're a tech company. We, we sell pharmaceuticals. I mean, they can regurgitate that, but to truly understand the operating model that's missing. And why do you think that is?
1: Oh, that's a great, it's a great question. You know, speaking from, you know, an accounting and finance standpoint, I do the same thing with, with the staffs that I've been involved with, you know, throughout my career that you did, and it's pushing them to get out to understand not only just the business, but also the processes that are in place and how they impact our folks. But when you get people out in the field to get engaged in the business, they start to be viewed as somebody who is part of the business and engaged in the business and intrigued by what other people do within the business instead of being viewed as you know just the accountant. I, I did the same thing, Steve, that you did. I used to ask a lot of inquisitive kind of questions. And I think when I, when I was first starting, those questions seemed more innocent, like, Hey, there's, here's a younger person that's just getting out of college that are asking these questions. And I, I always felt like I got better answers then, than if I were to do that today, mm-hmm. right? Which is something that can be frustrating. I want to know the business just like you. Do. I want to know the strategy. I want to know where we're going. And I think That's the value and people in our position in the finance and accounting position that are dealing with all of the data and all of the data is flowing back to us. And then understanding what the strategy is or how our folks think that we make our money, then you're on the lookout for that data. And do we have data that supports that? Right. And so I can take that and start turning that into real information and putting it back out into the field to help people make these decisions to see, are we just, are we operating off of, of kind of gut feel? And like what you're saying, kind of regurgitating what we knew maybe worked 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. is it even true any longer? And the data should show us that, but unless you get out and you understand that part of the business and you ask those questions and you get that feedback you're just taking in a bunch of data and turning around and just handing it back out to them at month end.
0: Yeah, well, and and let me ask you this because I think there's a stigma in the accounting finance department around the controller. And the stigma is that the word controller is synonymous with cop, right? They're like the cop. So it's like, oh, (laughs) the controllers call me, they need my paperwork, they need this information, the receipts turned in so they could close or whatever it is, but it's not necessarily seen as, you know, a a business partner role, Uh, but instead of like, it's viewed as this like compliance officer enforcer. And how do you think controllers can, you know, escape that stigma? We we talked about getting out there and, and learning the business and asking questions, but how else do you think controllers can, you know, break free from this mold that they get trapped in sometimes? Let's take a quick break. All right. I have to interrupt the show but I'll be super quick. I have a question for you. Who are you working for? Chances are you're working for everyone else besides yourself. Think about it. You're working for shareholders by grinding away in someone else's company. You're working for a bank by paying interest. You're working for the government by paying taxes. You're working for social media companies by giving your attention to their paid advertisers. You're working for your friends by doing crap that you don't want to do. You're working for everyone else by not pursuing the most essential things you are destined to achieve. Look, I've been there. I'm still there at times. Ugh, it could be so frustrating. If you want to achieve financial freedom, the fastest way to do it is through business. Don't get tricked by get-rich-quick schemes. Don't be fooled that your 401k is going to build you wealth. Don't waste time by trying to piece business finance together. Check this out. Here's my invitation. Go to byfiq.com, which stands for Boosting Your Financial IQ.com and check out our programs. We have one for every possible path you're on. Whether your goal is to become fluent in business finance, launch a profitable business or scale a business successfully, we have a solution to help you. I promise you, your life will change when you take action. So check out these opportunities that I've prepared for you. Now back to the show.
1: Right, I agree with you 100%. I think that title is one of the worst that's out there, especially in the, in the accounting world. But I think it really starts, just, Steve, is this, this interest in the business for where you work. Like I see so many times where you have people at a controller type level that aren't really interested in the business that they're in. They see their role as one where you're just taking in this data that's coming in it doesn't really matter where it comes from why you're getting it what kind of business you are it's all the same it's just a bunch of data coming from a bunch of different areas and business units and departments and we just gather it all and hand it right back out and i would just tell you if you're not interested and you're not engaged in the business the where you're working like that's not a good fit. Mm-hmm. And so when you get a business degree and this is what when I talk to college kids or even high school kids are going into college and I pitch these business degrees whether that's finance or accounting or marketing like the biggest value to that is you can take that anywhere. It sure. spreads across Every industry, whether you want to work for an architect or interior designer, because you kind of like to do design at home and you're interested in that, or it's you really like pets and animals and you want to get in with some big veterinary clinic, or you want to get into a logistics company because you're just amazed at how Amazon can have all of these different warehouses and have things dropped off at any house across the globe in two days, right? And so you can take an accounting degree, a finance degree, and you can go find what are you interested in and you try to get down that path. But I think what you see is accountants that just say I'll take whatever job is available at whatever company and just as long as it's good enough, you know, I'm fine with it, you know, and that's on that's on us sure. to make sure that we're properly aligned with those businesses because then that interest is there. Then you'll ask those questions, right? You'll take the initiative to try to make this business as accessible and get more involved and engaged in what's happening. And I think when that happens, that's when people start to view you no longer as an accountant or just a finance guy or the old bean counter. And all of a sudden, you become the strategic business partner, like you mentioned, that says, hey, That's a person in a position that's taking in all of this data and can turn it into information and give it back to us and let us know and help us to see what's going right and what's going wrong. And they know how to interpret the data. They know what they're looking for. They know when something is out of line. So it's not them just handing me something and then I have to comb through it and say, this doesn't look right and then send it back. But if you're disengaged in that business, you're never going to have enough interest to ask those inquisitive questions and really push the envelope and get involved in the business itself.
0: Yeah, no, and that, that's a really good point and great advice, there. Well, let me let me tell you something that used to annoy me, and I know annoys other business leaders, and it's it's this idea behind accuracy versus like timeliness, right? And getting this stuff out in real time. And and what I mean by that is whether it's a company that I've worked in or whether it's a company that I advise. You know, I've seen some organizations and they have like these chart of accounts and these general ledgers and they're tracking like the smallest things, right? They're tracking like ice or they're tracking, you know, snacks (laughs) on the general ledger. And you know, or I've worked with companies where they can't close the books. Because they're waiting on a journal entry and the amount is, is so immaterial. And it's like, you know, to me, right. my philosophy is I would rather get financials that are 95% correct and I get them in a timely manner, then financials that are a hundred percent correct, if there is such a thing, you know, right. six weeks after the month close. So what are your thoughts on that? And and how can finance professionals balance that? Because I mean, you don't want to be doing sloppy work and saying, oh, here's roughly our revenue. Obviously there's there's rules around that, but what are your thoughts on balancing the two?
1: Yeah. It's different for every type of business too. And I've given presentations on this. It's, the FMA, it's been one of the topics that I touch on is accuracy versus precision and the timeliness. And you'll get a, a wide range of responses when you get done from people that say, oh, you're spot on. That's what we do to people that say, oh, so your financial statements just aren't real. They're not right. good because you're not dotting the I's and crossing all of those T's. And when I tell people Especially in, in, in our industry, in construction industry, our financials are, are primarily built by, by the work in progress schedule, which are built by hundreds and hundreds of guesses, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of touched on it a minute ago, are your financials ever correct? Like it's the best guess with the best information that you have available at that time. And so when you start having these discussions with people, well, what is, what does materiality mean? Like at what point are you ready to just kind of close the books just to get the reports out versus keeping them open? And my response to that is always understanding who the reviewer, who the audience is for those reports that you're sending out. And I'll give you a great example that we've experienced that we experienced in the past when we were trying to condense our close. We used to issue financials the 23rd, 24th, 25th of the month. It's your three plus weeks after the month end close. And it drives a guy like me crazy because it feels like another month has already taken place by the time we're telling you what you did last month. And you hear it from your operations personnel that by the time they get that report, they're like, well, we already changed a lot of things. I think we're doing better this month. You know, you just continue to play that game. And so we've been really pushing now to get our financials done. I mean, at the latest, we're issuing financials by the 10th of the month. That's at the absolute latest. Sure. And so when you're talking about the accuracy versus precision and the timeliness of closing the books is you have to understand who your audience is. And it's for us, the primary audience was regional managers. Our regional managers, we work in Hawaii, and California, Oregon, Washington. And so we have regional managers in all these areas. And that's the primary audience for our financial reports. And what we found when we started digging into our process And we were trying to find out how can we squeeze days out of our clothes is we got hung up on depreciation and we're a, we're a heavy civil contractor. So we buy and sell a lot of equipment. We're improving a lot of equipment or doing some big repairs that need to be capitalized. And so every month we were holding open the books so that we could update our fixed asset schedule and post the quote unquote exact depreciation for the month. Well, when you look at our reporting packages that are being sent out to our operations managers, depreciation doesn't play a role whatsoever. When they're taking in equipment in the region, we have our own internal kind of ownership cost. If you're going to take a D8 dozer, it's going to cost you X amount of dollars a month just Mm -hmm. to have it. So depreciation didn't even factor in to the financial reports that we were sending out to all of our operations managers. But on the back end, it's delaying getting those reports out to the operations managers because we're waiting on depreciation, right? So that was one of those areas where you're like, wait a minute, who is the audience? Does this impact the audience, whether this depreciation is exact or not? And you could find out, well, no, it doesn't. Okay, then I don't need to hold the books open longer to get the depreciation done, sure. right? And what we do is we look back and we're like, on average, our depreciation doesn't change all that much from month to month. So if we reconciled last month, this month, let's just post last month's depreciation as this month's depreciation expense, and then we'll true that up the following month. You know, so you really need to be looking at the audience and who's receiving that information and then ask yourself, the question is what I'm working on that's delaying the production of these reports, is it going to be material to the end user? And that's the easiest way to help make that decision on, should I be doing this? And is there value in doing it versus not? But what you see a lot of times is just the nature of accountants. It's, I have to get this right. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to get away from is it's not necessarily that it's wrong. You're just getting information, you know, timely, and it's accurate to the decision makers in this business. That's the value of Accounting and finance personnel are, are one of the primary components of value for a finance and accounting person inside, especially a, a construction operation. Like, I want to get that information to the people who make the decisions.
0: Yeah. And I I mean, I I really like that example of depreciation and how that can hold up the financials. And, And you're right. It's understanding who the audience is of the financials because a different audience may require more precision, a different audience. They may require very fast data that's you know, 80% accurate because they need to make really, really quick decisions and they can't wait 10 days after the close. And I I think it's interesting because also understanding like what's the purpose of the financials. And if we just step back here and and you look at the income statement, for example, you say, what's the purpose of the income statement? I mean, the income statement in my mind really says, Hey, this measures our company's ability to turn a profit. Right. And if you look Mm at the financial drivers that you can understand, you know, by reading a financial statement, you have price. Okay. So are there pricing opportunities? Uh, can we gain a price premium? Can we move our price up or move it down to drive the bottom line? Uh, what about volume? Can we grow revenue? Can we get out there and sell? How about our margins? Can we improve our cost of goods sold? Can we you know, make our labor more efficient, maximize our return on labor, or could we negotiate better material prices or whatever that is? And then you have GNA, right? And when you look at those four drivers, that's the point of the financial statement is to get it in the hands of the people that are making the day-to-day decisions that are impacting these drivers. And I think when we forget about that Right. And we get lost in creating financial statements that are according to GAAP, which I think they should be. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but it's right. like, oh, it's got to follow right. this and it's got to be to the penny. And I can't book this entry. If it's, you know, $5 off, it's going to be wrong. And my work is garbage. And in the meantime, <laughs> the people don't have the tools to go out there and understand whether or not the financial drivers that they're pulling are actually moving the needle.
1: Yeah. And that is the driver you know the quicker you can get that information to those guys and they can make those decisions you now have a sense from an accounting and finance standpoint that i'm adding to the bottom line right and that's the other side of accounting and finance that you get viewed upon as this you're just an expense you're an overhead expense it's just cash out this is a great way to feel engaged in that business and know that the data that you took in and turned it into an information and kind of told the story and got it to your operations personnel allowed them to make a decision sooner than maybe they otherwise would have, which saved the company X amount of dollars or maybe made the company X amount more dollars. And some of that can be just contributed back to you and your ability to take all that data in and get it back out there quicker so that they can make those decisions sooner. Sure. And that, that's what should get you excited about you know, financial statements, because you do get to be that kind of that gatekeeper of all the data coming in right? It all comes to you. And then you get to put it all together and bam, get it back out there. And that's the exciting part about what we do and how we can feel engaged in the business and not just be the controller and data has to come in. I have to dot the I's, cross the T's, and then we'll just hand out reports later telling you, well, this is how you guys did. Yeah. Yeah, It's just two completely different kind of mindsets from an accounting and finance standpoint that you're either going to be excited and engaged in that business. And one of the ways is making sure that you understand what's important and what's not and what you're reporting and who you're giving it to, or you're taking the route of just being an accountant.
0: Yep. Well, and I'll give you a perfect example and quantify this here. There's a company I was working with a few years back and they had 150 employees that would come in, operation employees. They'd come in every morning to the office and they would go to the yard and some people were loading up the the trucks and the equipment and they're getting ready for the day. And what we realized really quickly you know, through these financials and these financial conversations is that they were wasting at least one labor hour per day. You know, with this morning routine, there's a giant bottleneck in the yard. You know, some people are standing around. You have a a five person crew. One person's loading up the truck or inside the office getting paperwork for the day. The rest of the crew is just standing there and they're wasting, you know, on average 150 labor hours per day. Well, you put an average wage with, you know, labor burden on top of that. And they quickly realize (laughs) that they're losing about four grand a day, right? Well, you take that four grand a day times 250 work days. And that's about a million bucks, right? And so it's a million dollars. I mean, that was a, a, a small company, right? 150 employees. But those are the types of things where, you know, in the accounting role or the controller role or CFO role, you could get so bogged down by the numbers that you forget about the story and the drivers. And here, accounting, you know, departments are out there. They're so focused on trying to justify their salary and their value to the company by creating precise financial statements, but they're missing the million dollars going out the door every single day because the people who can make the decisions aren't getting the data. They're not getting it in a visual format where they say, wow, we're losing a million bucks. Okay. We're going to change. And, and this company, they realized that and they said, look, from now on, the crew leaders are going to get to the office early, an hour early. They're going to get all their paperwork turned in. They're going to get all their scheduling stuff. They're going to have their their meetings, their kickoff meetings with, with senior leadership. And then everybody else is going to show up when all the trucks are loaded, they're started, they're at the gate, they're ready to go. And the company saved about a million bucks. right? So that, that's just Bingo. one way to illustrate this very point.
1: Yeah. And you, know, you don't know that just staying in the office, that's where you go out and you start seeing these things. You start asking the questions. Then you start coming back and trying to find the data you know, that's out there that will help support a key decision that you think could be made. And sometimes this just takes initiative, you know, from a finance or accounting personnel, it's not asking, you know, Hey, would you like to have this information or what do you think about this? It's being able to get out there, ask the questions, you're talking to the folks that are doing the work that are hands on and you start getting that feedback. And then you go back and start seeing, Hey, is there something we can build here that I can prove and put back in front of somebody else to say, Hey, here's some data. This is from us. Nobody asked for this. I've been out in the field and I've been talking to people. This is what I think that could happen. And is this something that interests you? Again, going back to being engaged in the business, you're not going to do that if you don't necessarily care about the business itself, how the business makes money, and you just view your role as just a job. Like you say, trying to justify your job all the time. No, I, I agree completely.
0: And you know the reason why I love strategy and finance, and we've talked about this before. I believe that strategy is not about making predictions. I've never sold prediction strategy to companies, and what I mean by that is I'm not a person who goes out to organizations. Neither is my team, where we go out there and we say, "Look, here's market data. This is what the futurists are saying about the next five years. Let's craft a strategy to position your firm based on these predictions," because. If you're out there trying to sell prediction strategy, you're trying to predict the future and create these strategies to give you a leg up, You know, something like COVID happens and your strategy is just complete Ooh. garbage, right? So these black swan events right. exist out there. So instead, I believe that strategy is all about a process to follow. It's a process where you say, here's our shared vision. Here's our market focus and position. Here's our competitive behavior. That's going to give us an advantage. And here are the resources and returns that we expect. And when you start looking at strategy like that, and then you go out there and you make hypotheses and you say, I hypothesize that if we do this, then it will result in this. And then you go execute and then you measure And then when you get this data, like we're talking about, then it starts coming full circle. So that's what I believe strategy is about is process to follow. You hypothesize, you go out there and test your hypotheses. And then you may realize like, you know, going back to my example, you may hypothesize and say, look, let's just have the crew leaders meet at the office and then everybody else will meet well, that may sound like a good idea and it may ink out on paper as a million dollar savings, but then you actually do it and you realize you're losing you know, efficiencies in other ways and then you got to modify and adjust. But without having that data in real time, having people who are interested in the business, engaged, understanding the, the model, how the company makes money, where the sources of value comes from, then you have this disconnect between strategy and finance.
1: Uh, yeah, you're spot on. And I, I think one other component to that is, Making sure that you stick to your strategy, even amongst things like COVID or blips in the radar. I feel like a lot of companies that are out there, maybe they don't even have a well defined strategy, but they think they're going in a certain direction. And these are our key customers. And these are the types of projects we want to go after. And as soon as something interrupts kind of a normal year, We kind of just throw things out the window, and all of a sudden, now we're doing projects we would have never done before. And he's like, why are we getting away from that strategy so quickly? based on something that's outside of our control, that's kind of disrupting our business. Now, if it's something Mm -hmm. that you think is going to be for the foreseeable future for the next three, four, five years, yeah, you may need to revisit the the strategy and make some tweaks. But I think you see that a lot where people do not have a well-defined strategy. They kind of say that they do, they really don't. And then when something disrupts that business, the strategy is completely out the window and now we're just going after any and everything. And I think that that is very detrimental to the team. I know it's detrimental to you know, finance uh, personnel. Like, I love understanding what is our strategy and how are we going to go measure that and prove that our strategy is delivering the results that we intended, that we get behind. Like, I always want to measure that and then try to figure out, is there another way to continue to tweak to get better or prove that our strategy isn't all what we thought it was going to be and maybe it needs to be revisited? Sure. But without Which okay. the strategy, you just have people all of a sudden you're just relegated to and kind of taking the data and saying, I'm not sure exactly what to measure except for just. Here's how profitable we are. And we're just handing it back with no real roadmap on why are we going to be successful and what's going to differentiate ourselves from everybody else? And what are our targets? What are we trying to accomplish?
0: And I agree. And I I think like with measuring, I I think a lot of companies, they just have a ton of metrics and and some companies will, they'll Google and they'll say, you know, what are the top 10 metrics or the top 20 metrics? And, you know, you'll look at these dashboards and they have everything from, you know, day sales outstanding to current ratios and and things like that. And, And not that those metrics are bad, right. But to your point, like the strategy, like you're measuring your strategy. So your strategy, Travis is different from My strategy. So, our measures are going to be different because we're pursuing different things. Right. So, I think like it goes back to that whole conversation of like really understanding the business. What are we really good at? And what are our true capabilities? And then building from that, and then having the data to support, you know, the day to day hypotheses that we're making out there is really critical because mm-hmm. I mean look, if you're a restaurant and the pandemic happens, obviously you may have to pivot. you know I, I live in Denver here and I was out last week and you know I, I see these clear little igloo things that, that people right. are, are going into to eat and they have little heaters in them and you know it's a way for the restaurant with restricted capacity limits to you know still you know serve people under the, the regulations and the restrictions. So I get that. Mm-hmm. But I think you know what you're saying and what I'm saying is it's fine to make adjustments to your strategy when things happen. But what's not okay, what's not successful is you're a restaurant and you look down the street and you say, wow, it looks like the burger restaurant is more popular than my restaurant, the Mexican restaurant. We're going to start selling burgers too, and Mexican burgers. food. Yeah. And my friend yeah. down the street, he really loves Italian. So we're going to do Italian burgers and Mexican. And then that's when you start straddling and your strategy goes in all different directions. And then your measures get out of control and people just get absolutely confused. Right.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're really good at doing tacos. And now all of a sudden we're, we're doing a uh, chicken parm.
0: Yep. Uh, exactly. J-
1: just to drive, <laughs> drive revenue. Right now it's uh, that can be extremely, extremely frustrating. And if you, if you're that quick, to make those pivots that you, you really got to look kind of at your, your overall strategy and whether it was really that sound or you're really committed to it, you know, in the, in the first place.
0: Yep, exactly. And I, I think that's where, you know, for the listeners, that's where I get so passionate about strategy and finance, like marrying together. I think there's too many strategies out there that are just a bunch of garbage. I mean, it's just marketing garbage thrown down on a piece of paper. There's mission, vision, values. They have some, you know, objectives or whatever. And it's it's just a bunch of garbage and strategy, you know, oftentimes I probably frustrate leaders because whether I'm speaking at a conference or whether I'm working with the client or whether I'm writing, people say, When is strategy done? What are we going to be done with this, Steve? And I say, Strategy is never done. It's it's not. Strategy is never complete. And that could be uncomfortable for some people. I can imagine. Let's switch gears here for a second because I want to go back to understanding the audience of financials. I think this is really important and it really ties in this idea of empathy. You know, yeah. I've I've been to multiple courses on this, and by no means am I an expert at empathy, but I've learned by speaking, you know, doing keynotes and other things like that, how important it is to have empathy for your audience. So as A financial leader understanding what information the CEO needs to make decisions, what information field operations need to make decisions, and customizing that can be really important. But also, you don't want to have financial report creep where your packet goes from, you know, 10 pages to 100 pages, right? With another financial report and another financial report. So, what's your thought on that? Like, how do you balance? not having this report creep where the package just gets so arduous to put together, but also giving the information, the right information to the people who need it and how to keep them focused.
1: Yeah, it can be a, it can be a real challenge because you don't know who, who's in control of what information is important. You've been in situations where, like what you're talking about, where there's separate groups that request you know, their own information. And that can pose some of its own challenges too, where it wants things in different format and different things, different types of levels of detail. So now you're kicking out financial statements, but you're kicking them out in a variety of different ways. And at some point that can be hard to manage. But I think what becomes more difficult is when you have maybe a single voice. And a lot of times that comes from a finance in an accounting department saying, this is what you should be looking at right? And you just keep adding to these packets all the time because you're saying all of this stuff is important. And at one point or another, it is important. But you start building these packets that end up being 60 and 80 pages. It can guarantee you that the person who's receiving those packets is probably looking at a handful of those pages. Mm-hmm. You know, so are you are you achieving the objective, right? You think that, hey, this is information that you should need One, where are you getting that? Why do you think that's so important where the person who is ultimately responsible for making those decisions maybe doesn't think that's important? And that's not to even determine who's right or wrong, but you need to be sitting down with that person to understand where they're coming from and and broach some of these topics. Like what about equipment costs, for instance, and this type of equipment cost and mechanics you know, cost per hour of equipment being utilized? Like, do you think that would be valuable to help you manage the number of mechanics that you have on staff versus the number of, you know, pieces of equipment that you have out operating? Like, and you try to find out what is important for people. But I've I've been in many situations where you have just someone in the finance and accounting world that's saying, hey, this is what the packet should be. And then they just kind of keep adding to it every time there's a new request. And now you just get these massive packets that are going out to people that they're not really looking at those packets. I would say you know, stripping down some of those packets, getting the information out, hopefully a little bit sooner, but having follow-up one-on-one. Yep. With people to discuss the smaller packet, and say, what are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on that? What what do you wish you could see every month that you're not currently getting? And that can be valuable to me or not valuable to me. But at the end of the day, we have people in positions making decisions on behalf of the company. I need to know what they think they need to have to make their decisions, and hopefully we can have some discussions on those yeah. topics too. If they ask for one piece. I think it's important for finance and accounting personnel to think beyond that one piece of data and say, "Ooh, if you want to look at that, you probably want to also bring in X, Y, Z. Exactly. Right? So they get the full picture, right? So you're not just feeding them exactly what they want, but you're using their input to develop that next report for them. And you pull in all the extra information. You say, here's the information you wanted, plus here's the rest of that picture. So that you're not making a decision kind of just, just in a bubble based on one data point. yeah. Right, And I think that's where, that's where we get off. And I don't think we reset. I don't think we reset often enough. I think we just add to, like you kind of mentioned with the reporting package, it started off as 12 pages, then it got up to 22. And you just keep adding and adding and adding. And there's never a reset to say, what's working well, what's not, what do you look at? Because if you're not looking at it, I want to be focusing on something else that you will look at and that you think will provide value because this shouldn't just be about me kicking out reports. That doesn't benefit the company.
0: Well, I think that's a great point. Those reports need
1: to be digestible.
0: Yeah, because, you know, when you're providing less information and I'm not saying you withhold information, but you're simplifying and then you're having those one-on-ones, not only are you empathizing with the end user and understanding what they're truly looking at and what they need to be effective, but you're also doing... Like mentoring and coaching along the way. And you're, yeah. you're teaching them about financials. And I think that's so critical at every level of the business for people to understand the story behind the numbers. So let, let, me, uh, let yeah. me ask you this in conclusion here. Let's say I'm listening to this podcast right now. I'm in a financial role and I'm thinking, Steve, Travis, I hear you. I want to be more engaged in the business, but I am so slammed. I, I can't even get my work done You know, without working 60 hours a week And I, I'm having a hard time even closing the books on time. And now you want me to go, you know, walking around and talking to people and asking questions. That's just not practical. So what would you say in response to that? How do you balance? Like, yes, it's important to get out there know what the company does, walk the assembly line, you know, go up and down the manufacturing plant, go sit with the coders for a day, understand how they code, you know, the, the software of the business that the business is selling. You know, how do you do that when the demands of accounting and finance are just so much sometimes that you could just feel buried doing the day-to-day transactional stuff?
1: And I don't want this to be a, a cop-out response. It's something I, I truly believe in. It, it, it really comes down to your your leadership right, and your managers and your boss. I will tell you, if your leadership views your position as one that should be 60 hours a week behind a computer, just crunching numbers and working in Excel sheets, and I don't need you to be engaged in the business, you're going you're, you're gonna to find it very difficult to ever do what What we've been talking about here today, right? You need that manager support. You need the executive level support so that you can prioritize getting out and understanding the business and have people that value you spending that time. Not that, that, oh, it's just cool. And it's something that you like to do. And if you want to do it, yeah, you can go do it, but understanding why you're doing it. And it's to become engaged in the business And to understand the data better, understand processes better and how they impact our guys and how we can be more efficient and have there be a belief there that in you doing that, we're becoming a much more efficient and productive company, which is adding to the bottom line. In some cases, it's kind of like marketing, right? You can't directly tie a new sale to this marketing effort. Like it's really hard. There is some just belief that this level of marketing is good for the overall business. Mm -hmm. There's just so many variables that are in play. It's hard to just say, oh, it's because of marketing that this one thing happened. And it's a lot that way in the accounting world as well. You're becoming more productive and more efficient, and it's kind of getting lost in all of the numbers. And it's still kind of our responsibility to try to highlight some of that. I know we want to. But you've got to have leaders in positions that say, this is valuable. I don't want just my equipment operators and project teams to understand what we do out in the field and how we make money and how we treat our customers and how we treat our, our vendors and our subcontractors. Like I want everyone that works for the company to understand how our operation works. So it starts in leadership being able to prioritize, you know, everybody being able to spend time getting out in the field. And when you're sitting with your manager and you're working 60 hours a week, be going through those items and saying, here's what I'm doing. What are some things that we could either pass down to somebody else, stop doing so that I can find that time to be able to go do something that we think is more valuable than these other tasks. It's difficult because you will find yourself in a lot of companies where You are in accounting and finance, not necessarily a part of the business. And that's more of a perk to be able to kind of get out of the office and go see what we do rather than this is a benefit to the company. And I want people in my accounting and finance departments to understand how we make money and how their processes impact our operation in the field. Yeah, I agree. And the easy, easy answer.
0: Well, I agree. And, and when I was CFO, we had a whiteboard outside my office in this little huddle room, and I wrote two things on there. I said, "Simplify and make money." And I said, "Let's focus on that. Let's simplify. Let's cut stuff. Let's consolidate our reporting. Let's, you know, simplify the chart of accounts. Let's just simplify everything that we do so we can free up time." And then. Let's make money, right? Let's focus on what the business actually does. And I think that's critical. And, and, you know, throughout this whole conversation, it reminded me of this recurring theme, you know, all the CFOs that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed a lot of financial professionals and CFOs, the common theme here is that to advance in a leadership position. So if you're listening to this and you're in finance or accounting and you want to, you know one day become a a controller or a director of finance or the CFO probably the best way to do that is to learn the business i mean i i've talked to so many CFOs and some CFOs are like i was not a very good student with math you know i wasn't really great at numbers or you know i wasn't super strong in accounting but I had this thirst and this passion for learning the business and that's what helped them to accelerate and to be successful in their career. So, you know, great points that you made today, Travis, you know, I, I think you're doing wonderful things in, in the industry and that's why I was so excited for our conversation because, you know, you have that strategic financial leadership mindset Then, you know, you get that whole role and how it's evolving. And I think uh, you've provided so many tremendous insights for the listeners and you're a great example out there for so many people. So thank you for being on the show.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, Steve. Uh, you, you've inspired me over the years, webinars and conferences that, that I, I've attended. So So thank you.